Bow your heads with me and let us speak to that Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for your dying love for each one of us. Thank you for music by which we can sing of it, be moved by it. Thank you for the gifts of voices and musicians and instruments, but especially of your Holy Spirit who comes and takes the words and the sounds and the sentiment and draws our hearts out to you. Lord Jesus, take these moments for us, each one, as if we were with you by ourselves, as if you came and put your arm around our shoulder and had a quiet conversation with us. To that end, that same end, Lord, please take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. Take our hearts, Lord Jesus, and set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, please be seated. You are. <laughs> My mind's eye, you were all standing. How about that? Well, as we spend our time together around God's word this morning, there is one central key thought that I hope gets communicated and as we speak about giving and giving to God and our pledges this coming week, as we pray about them, that the real issue is not us being under any sense obligation, though we are, not simply out of gratitude for all Christ has done for us, though Scripture expects us and encourages us to respond with gratitude. We're going to be looking at those words but beyond whatever the reasons are, the big question is this. Does Christ, Jesus, have you in the palm of his hand? Do you believe that you are in the palm of his hand? Does he hold you and you understand that he holds you and that you belong to him and that he will never fail you, that all his promises to you are real and true so that you can trust him because that's his great desire. And the expectations of our Lord Jesus are not rules and regulations that we set, though there are guidelines and straight, strong statements that the scripture makes to us so we understand what his will is for us. But knowing that as a reality and us from our vantage point endeavoring in some way to respond to those expectations that God has is not the bottom line. The foundation of any of that is the secure knowledge that we belong to Jesus and that he has made promises to us which he will always hold true. 
He is faithful when we are faithless. He doesn't go away and leave us and just respond to us because he counts us good enough or because we've done something good for him or because we've said a prayer here and there. Does he have you? Do you belong to him self-consciously and know that you are his? That's the big deal. And I trust that that all comes through as we look at these scriptures. You see, we have sung songs here this morning that are spectacular. We've spoken about a Lord who has our backs. He goes before us. He watches from behind us. He's got his angel armies. That image that comes right out of the Bible, that those who are for us are more than those who are against us. Unseen angelic hosts. The Lord himself who's got our back and leads us forward. We've sung those words. We've just heard about a Lord Jesus at Calvary. And our minds went to that image of being at Calvary. A God who is so for us that as again we have sung, who can be against us? And the meaning of that statement, who can be against us? We know there are all kinds of people may be against us. The world, the flesh, and the devil are against us. But the way the question is asked is, who can come against us and win? Who can come against us and beat us down when the Lord is on our side? When he's out there ahead of us, hemming in us from behind and protecting us, and has his angel hosts guarding us? Who can come against us and win? And intimidate us? And beat us down and back us off? None is the expected answer. Because God is for us, Who can ever be against us and win? Now that's a promise of scripture. Do we believe that? Are we able to trust that God with all that we have, all that we are? Our families, our resources, our futures, our nation? Turn to page 6 in your service sheet or to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6 in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're picking up this teaching at verse 6, where Paul says, remember this. It's amazing how often the scriptures tell us, call us to remember. That's a sermon in itself. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now this is an obvious truth to encourage us to generosity. To invest ourselves wholeheartedly in God's kingdom and God's work. But let me ask you this. Why would anybody sow sparingly? You realize that this is an agricultural image from that day. The picture would be of a sower with a basket of seed, didn't have all these automated planting machines following a tractor, 
and he would walk out and scatter the seed. He knew that if he took one basket full of seed in a one-acre lot and scattered that one basket of seed, he would have a very scant return on his acre. But if he scatters basket after basket of seed, he could have a tremendous harvest. Now let me ask you, think about this. Why would a farmer have an acre of land and throw out a meager few handfuls of seed? Have you got an answer? Well, let me suggest one or two. At least if he doesn't throw out basketfuls of seed, but only one basket, he's still got the other basketfuls of seed. He's not risking them. He's just got his one basketful that he's thrown out. The rest he still has. He could say to himself, what if there's a drought? What if all the rooks, crows, and other creatures come and eat up my seed? If I throw out just a little bit, I won't lose that much. That's a thought. It is a risk that the farmer takes to invest heavily in that one acre, and if he sows generously, he can reap a great harvest. If he he sows sparingly, one thing is absolutely sure. All he can do is expect at best a meager response from his acre. Paul is stating an obvious truth, not about farmers throwing seed. That's a picture. It's a picture of what we do with our lives. Where are we invested with our lives? Who has possession of our lives? So all the questions I raised earlier about, do you believe that God really has you in the palm of his hand? Do you believe the promises he's made to you? Do you trust him with your life? That's the big question. Because if you, if you don't, if you don't really believe he has a hold of you, if you don't believe that your life is his, if you don't believe he's got your back, watching out for you down the road in the future, you're going to do everything you can with your limited resources to take care of you and invest in you as against spending your life, yourself, your time for him. Because at least we know we've got in hand whatever those resources are. If we expend them and use them up for him, whatever the proportions are, now we're at his mercy. Now he has to come through. But if we don't believe he will, then we'll hang on to whatever security we can mobilize for ourselves. There was a man by the name of George Muller, or Mueller, M-U, with an umlaut over the U-L-L-E-R, a German who went to England as a missionary in the 1800s, a very unusual circumstance. Most people would think of George Muller, who, anybody who knows of him, as an Englishman. But he crossed over into England from Germany in the 1800s as a believer in Jesus and a missionary to England. And as a young man, England got caught up in these great plagues, cholera and influenza in particular, which devastated other nations as well. And as a result in England, there were all kinds of orphans on the streets 
both parents died from either cholera or influenza. And George, George Muller started taking in these children in the town of Bristol, which was England's second most important city in those days, Bristol, England, he started an orphanage in a house. I spent three years as a student in Bristol. There was a George Muller home near my college, and I would go over there once a week and spend time with the kids over dinner and playing with them afterwards, mostly wrestling with the boys, putting a sort of father-like masculine image in their presence. That home was started by George Muller. It was said in those days that if George Muller was walking up and down in front of your house praying, you may as well put it on the market. Because he was out there praying that the house would become available to take in more orphans. He never advertised his need. His primary goal was to prove, listen to me carefully, his primary goal was not so much to take care of the children. That was the means. His primary goal was to prove that God will answer prayer and is absolutely dependable. That was his goal. So he didn't advertise and he didn't go out begging. He prayed. You read his biography. In terms of contemporary dollars, millions came in through the answer to prayer. My wife, watching a movie, an old-fashioned click-click-click-click-click-click movie, when she was a teenager, saw a movie about George Muller and his life, and she asked herself this question, does God really answer personal, individual prayer like that? Can you trust him? Was the question she heard for her life can you trust him with your life to provide for you? And from that day on, she answered yes and began to pray in like manner to George Muller about all the issues and details of her life. That's how she got me. <laughs> I'm laughing to myself as well. I... I I didn't mean to say that, but I'll tell you this. The day I met her, she had been slated to get married. I didn't know that. But along the way, she broke off the engagement. So when I met her, she was an available and free woman who was trusting Jesus to provide for her. So even though I said that in passing jest, I really am an answer to prayer as she is an answer to mine. She has set herself and is a great example and encouragement to me to do everything by prayer. She's got a brilliantly generous spirit and has always trusted God to provide for us and for our family. Do you have that kind of relationship with the Lord? There is one instance, it's a very famous instance, but George Muller's life was filled with such instances 
where he sat with his orphans around a table at breakfast time with absolutely no food and said, let's give thanks to the Lord for breakfast. And he knew there wasn't any. He prayed, and as he finished the prayer, there is a knock at the door, and the local baker's equipment had broken down outside the house, and he had a truckload of bread to unload in his orphanage. And that was breakfast. To know that there is a God who will hold you in his hand, has made promises to you and is as good as those promises so that you can sow generously. Because if you don't believe that, you won't. You'll just take care of yourself first and foremost. Now look at how it goes on to speak to us. Each man, this is verse 7, each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. So this is a prior decision that Paul's talking about. So prayerfully make your decisions, and in giving it's not reluctantly, or under any sense of compulsion, you see that, for God loves a cheerful giver. Why would we be cheerful givers? Because we trust him. Because we believe in him. Because we're glad to be a part of what he's doing. Because his priorities are our priorities. Because we would rather invest with him than anybody else. Because we're thrilled to be a part of his life, to know that we belong to him, and that as we invest in what he's about, instead of having a meager response to our lives and our, how we live and what we do for him, we end up creating a huge response. Relatively speaking, do we want to be a part of something like that? Well, here are further encouragements. Look at these following verses. 8 through 11 speak of, time and time again, how God is no man's debtor, that you can never outgive him, that he is the great provider. Look at verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, still speaking of God and his generosity, he has scattered abroad his gifts to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, says verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Promise after promise about God's generosity, about his care for us, his desires for us, and how he will provide for us, and expand our market, extend our borders, increase our influence. I have to say in passing 
that this is not a tit for tat. You give to me. I've heard a lot of preachers use this as a means to extract money from you with the expectation that having extracted that money from you, like a seed planted, you're going to multiply their income. There's a kind of a get rich. God wants all Christians to be wealthy, healthy and wise philosophy. And it's used as a means of extracting your money for their cause. That's not what's going on here. God makes his promises to us because of who he is, not because of what we do. We don't earn, we don't buy, we can't curry favor. It's not about us. It is about him. And when we trust him, when our lives belong to him, we can throw all those inhibitions to the wind. He is looking for us to trust him. He gives us all kinds of encouragements here to trust him, to be sure that he owns us. And we know it, and therefore know that he's got our backs as well as our futures. My wife and I have discovered year after year after year, that we can never outgive God's goodness. And that we're never, so to speak, able to hold him in debt or at ransom for anything we've given or done. In other words, he's no man's debtor. And God has blessed our lives beyond any measure. We stand, excuse me just being this personal to you, but we stand almost daily and look back over our lives and are in awe of how God has not just provided for us, but beyond our wildest imagination. Not because we're good, not because he owes us, but because that's who he is. My great desire for you, one by one, I'm, here I am looking out as if looking right into your eyes, is that you could hand over your life, lock, stock, and barrel to him and trust him with who you are. That's the big deal. He knows what he has spent on you. He's given up his very son. That's why the scripture says, if Christ is for us, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a done deal. I want you to take a moment in quiet with me right now and deal with the Lord. You know the struggles you're having. So does he. He knows better than you. He knows how you got into those struggles. Who's responsible for the mess you're in? He knows so much more than you will ever know because there is nothing hidden from him. So this is a moment for you and for him in your relationship to him that you might be willing to cast all your care upon him, to give your very self to him in your own heart. Speak to the Lord. I'm going to pray in the first person, that is, as if it's me speaking to the Lord about me but so that you can take my words and speak to the Lord about you. I'm going to ask you to pray out loud with me so that you can hear yourself saying these words for yourself.
And you're speaking to the Lord who is present there, right before you. So say out loud with me, Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for your promises to me. Thank you for coming to live in me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for this moment I have with you. Help me to trust you. To throw the whole weight of my being upon you. That all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. I am yours. You hold me. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Help me to live for you. Amen.